0: Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, just a great day of gathering in your house and worshiping you. And Lord, as we hear from the scriptures, I pray that um, it takes roots in each, each of our hearts and that you bear good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Anthony. Well, my name's Anthony, but I am a pastor here. Uh, so it's great to be here. And that, that new song, came, and the Band, just led, thank them for that. That was beautiful. Um, That was actually written by our friend Kip Fox. A Lutheran wrote that. We can write stuff that isn't only him. So hopefully... can we sing that again? But I text him like, you're welcome, you can retire now. Um, so he made 20 cents this morning. But we're so glad you're here. Um, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, let me remind you, we had a wonderful weekend of ministry here at Bethany. Um, we, we had brought in a guest um, author, an apologist, Elisa uh, Childers, and she shared her story of how she had grown up in a wonderful Christian home and always loved Jesus, but it wasn't until later in her life she started to kind of have her faith unravel, if you will, where she started to have to answer the questions like, why do I actually believe what I believe? And it was a crisis of faith for her. And instead of running away from it and throwing it out, she dug in and, and came to figure out what historical Christianity, Christianity is about and why we follow Jesus and how, how, how that plays out in our lives. And through that, God led her to the calling of being an apologist, one who defends the Christian faith with truth and grace and gentleness. And she's, she's an author. And, and Saturday, last Saturday, she held a workshop that was greatly attended and Bible study last week had like 180 people in it. And we just kind of saw an itch that we need to scratch more here around Bethany of, of equipping the saints of why do we actually believe what we believe? which is leading us into this season, what is truth? And that's the question, right? Since humanity's time, when Adam and Eve were tempted, Satan said, is that is that what God really said? Questioning truth. And I was reminded after the last service, um, an older gentleman came up and he said, "Ah, even the he said those hippies were wrestling with this question because I made the the uh, comment that kind of older generations kind of like it. W- there was an objective truth, and now now younger generations, Gen Z, even millennials, were like ah, what is truth? Tell me why the sky is blue. Like, prove it, boomer. Like, we kind of that's the air we breathe.' Now, I mean that with respect. My parents are boomers, um, and and that's the air we breathe. And and some of us may be hoping that the next several weeks are going to be Pastor Danner and I equipping you with every apologic, apologetic tool in your tool belt so you can go defeat the angry atheist in your workplace or convince your family member why they should follow Jesus. And that's all good and awesome. And that happens Sunday morning in the Bible hour class, which we had like 90 people in there this morning. Praise God for that. And that was just the adult Bible class, not even um, the parent class and all that's going on. But that's all good. But what we're doing the next week, the next couple weeks is we're exploring what do the scriptures talk about the relationship of faith and doubt and trust and how that all plays together in truth and what does that mean. And if I asked you what is faith, I'd probably get as many different answers as there are people in this room and then take that out to those who don't yet follow jesus and it's going to be a completely just a whole bunch of different answers now what we got to kind of define terms this morning we're starting with this that biblical faith is trust and that trust is based on good evidence Following Jesus historically is based on evidence it 's not this pie in the sky blind faith where it 's just like I have faith that i 'll win the lottery actually that 's really bad faith. The evidence is against my favor actually, but for Christians, and if you were in the Bible study last week, Elisa um, unpacked this passage more, but Paul writes to the Corinthians, "For I deliver to you as of first importance." What I also received that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that the and then He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. We don't have time to unpack all that's going on here, but this has come to be known as one of the earliest creeds, one of the earliest statements of faith for the first followers of Jesus. That this was actually based on the physical resurrection of a crucified rabbi that wasn't just feel good feelings and oh he had some nice things to say but he actually died and rose and appeared to the 12 and paul goes on to say to the crowds of about 500 people and it's based on historical evidence that as it has been studied it is reliable is there room for questions and doubts in there of course did any of you ever meet abraham lincoln no no But we trust that he was a real person. There's always room. Nothing is 100%. But I say all that to show that, yes, it is grounded in truth. But here's the big question I've been wrestling through. If it's based on this historical evidence, why aren't more people followers of Jesus? If we have all the, the tools in our apologetic tool belt, and we can show his, history records and all these things, and just why can't we convince people to follow Jesus? Why can't you convince your child who was raised in the faith and walked away that, see, here's the historical evidence, or the, the angry atheist on the internet, or whatever it may be? Because the reality is, it does come down to faith. And in this passage from Luke that we're going to unpack, we see Jesus talking about this, this just correlation of trust and faith and doubt and how it's not so clean cut as we wish it would be. But before we can understand what Jesus was getting at in this parable, this story, we have to understand what was going on. Jesus was going around and he was proclaiming the good news by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that wasn't turn or burn. That was repent, change your mind. The the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God, the rule of the heavens is coming to earth in this person. And then he goes about. And he starts demonstrating what the kingdom looks like through his words and through his deeds, through the miracles, through the healings that he does. And then he goes and, to explain kind of in this, in this story that first century people who were farmers would have understood probably more than you and I, that he tells the story of the parable of the sower, as we call it now, to explain these spiritual truths, to unpack them for the crowd. I'm not gonna read the whole thing again but um the kind of main elements here the sower in this parable is who god thank you jim this is the third one good time you got it you got it down this time the sower is god and then the seeds are the word of god or the the words that come from god and you could actually make the theological leap here that um the word here is logos in the greek and in the uh, in john when it says the word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God, is the same word, logos. That actually the seed is Christ himself being buried and then bearing fruit. And then you have the various soils. And the first one is this path. Imagine just slaughter lane, and you take seed and you throw it on there, and, and people don't receive it. The birds come and eat it up, and no fruit comes from those seeds. Or imagine just um, a rocky path. There's dirt underneath, but it's covered in rocks, and you throw the seed on there, and they start to spread up. But Jesus says, but because temptation comes, that fruit never bears, and those who hear it receive it, and then it falls away. Or think of a field where there's soil, but the seed's thrown on there, and it's choked out by the weeds and and the, the thistles and the thorns that are there. And those people hear it and receive it and start to, to bear fruit. But because of the worries and even the pleasures of the world, the fruit does not come to maturity and it falls away. And for many, that might be kind of our culture where we, where we live, we just have so much stuff that the pleasures of the world choke out the faith we've received in our baptisms. And the last one is the good soil. But Jesus says the farmer throws it on the good soil and it grows and bears fruit with patience. Now some common, popular, not even wrong ways of interpreting this parable is kind of like, what's the seed of your heart? What's the soil of your heart? Is it rocky ground? Is it the path?" Is it the thistles and thorns, or is it good soil? And, and that's not all wrong. It, it might be a good diagnostic tool for you where you're at in your faith journey of, man, are the worries and the pleasures of the world choking out this faith? If you're sitting here going like, I'm just good soil, look at all this fruit, you, you're not, that's actually, you're not good soil then. <laughs> it's not wrong to interpret it that way, and it can even be a helpful tool, but, um, this parable is also taught in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And, and they're very similar. And I've taught extensively on the Matthew one before. And I was reading commentators on, on Luke's version of it. And, um, and all these commentaries from across denominations that I've read, are they often think of actually this parable isn't about four different soils. It's about two. Two soils, one that bears fruit and one that doesn't. Now, how many soils were there? Four. How many bore fruit? One. If you took a test right now, one out of four is a big fat F. Failing. (laughs) What many commentators speak to about this parable is that this parable is actually to help us see that the kingdom of God does not look successful on the surface most of the time. One out of four times, the seed bears fruit. And if you look at Jesus' life and ministry, at the end of his life, he did not look successful. He was naked, hanging on a cross, being mocked by the people who were days before hailing him as king of the Jews. Then he dies and raises from the grave, and it's not, boom, it just overtakes the Roman Empire. No, it's a slow, small, little group of people called the Way that start to devote themselves to the resurrected Messiah. And over generations, thousands of years, it's become a global movement, a reality of what the kingdom of God looks like. And I've been wrestling through this text of like what you might be thinking, what does this have to do with apologetics and faith and doubt and, and trust? Same here. I've been wrestling through this text saying, God, what do you want people to hear from the scriptures? Now, every time I go to preach, I'm desperate for the Lord to speak. But this last few weeks, I have been so desperate saying, God, what do you want to say to the people of Bethany in this place at this time in this season of our church? And I don't say this lightly, by the way, I kept sensing. I'm going to say hear from the Lord. Now I heard an audible voice, but just this this weight on me that, that, that the first is this. Don't harden your heart. Now, what I mean by that, we actually, I'm hearing this because of the text, that if you notice, when Pastor Danner was reading through Luke's account, there was a part where, uh, paraphrasing, don't harden your hearts or, or uh, close your eyes, but it's in parentheses. And actually, Jesus, in the midst of this parable, is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah, and in Matthew's account, we see it played out a little bit more in detail. And we read, indeed, this is Jesus saying, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their eyes, with their ears, they can barely hear, and with their eyes, they have closed closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Super uplifting. Now, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet who was called by God to go proclaim God's word to the nation of Israel. And over and over and over, he would proclaim, and over and over, they would harden their hearts so much so that God sends them into exile to be under the rule and reign of Babylon, to to be uh, basically persecuted under them because of their hardness of heart. And then Jesus, now, by quoting the words of Isaiah, he is standing in the place of Isaiah looking at the crowds, who is made up of who? The people of Israel. The same people, generations later, saying, don't harden your hearts. The Messiah is here. Listen, pay attention. The kingdom of God is at hand. The people that were called to follow Yahweh at the time of Isaiah, following Yahweh was not popular. It did not cause them to move up into the right in the social sphere. Following Yahweh did not look successful in the eyes of the Babylonian Empire. Now you and I... Through what Christ has done, we are the new Israel. We have been grafted into the family of God, and now we are called to follow Jesus faithfully and shine as a light to the nations. But here's the thing, following Jesus in our culture, while we are not under persecution, is a lot harder than it was 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago before being a Christian probably helped you move up into the right at your company. Oh, he's a a Christian, he's a good, honest guy, or she's a faithful, hard worker. But now that's not always the case, especially in a city like Austin. Even moving from Dallas, Dallas, it was like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, my mom and dad and dog are a pastor at, at so-and-so church on the corner. And I moved down here and people asked, we're at the playground with my son. I'm like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> Come on, Johnny. He's <laughs> he's weirdo. We have no friends on the playground. <laughs> my wife's company has their Christmas party tonight in almost February and and I'm like, oh no, people are going to ask what I do. And I say like, oh, I'm a consultant. I do actual things, right? I don't, like, do I, oh, what do I do? It costs us something now. And that's at the macro level. But if we zoom in to Bethany and our church here, I've been in Austin for nine months now. I've had the honor and pleasure of of serving you with Pastor Danner and the rest of our staff. And to me, Bethany is a massive church. This worship service alone is twice the size of my former congregation. Not the building. I mean, our whole building would fit where you're sitting. But the amount of people. But the reality is, like, I'm not sure to be a Debbie Downer, like, Bethany's not as large as she used to be. I've seen pictures, people have shown me pictures with lamenting, like, when this place was standing room only every single week. You look on the pictures, and it's just filled with young families. Many of you as small children on those walls. And it's easy to look around and get discouraged. And start wondering, like, God, are you up to anything? Is this worth it? And start having doubts and questions. I get it. It would be easier to throw in the towel. Like, brunch is way more fun than worship. Your kids' activities can easily overtake your schedule in all aspects of life. And our culture wouldn't blame you. And heck, at times, I wouldn't blame you. I really believe God is saying to us, don't harden your hearts. Stay in it. Because Jesus was speaking to the remnant of Israel. And I believe God is doing something in the West particularly, to his church, his bride saying, stick it out, don't harden your hearts. Now, you might be thinking, like, okay, don't harden my heart. But, like, how do I do that? Is he saying just try harder, believe more, stir faith. Oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. And that's not all bad. But the other thing I really believe God is saying through this parable to us is don't harden your hearts because we have a generous sower. If you look at the details of this this parable, it's kind of lost on us unless you grew up in a farming community or maybe you Your family is from farmers. Like a good farmer would never take a handful of seed, which in that time especially was costly, and be like, Slaughter Lane, going to bear some good fruit. (sighs) Huh, rocky path. Ah, weeds, soil that hasn't been tilled yet. No farmer would ever do that. Jesus is almost making a joke. They've been like, ah you're funny, Jesus. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is saying to the people of Israel, and I believe he's saying to us, God is a generous sower, and he is not giving up on his people. As dismal as times may see, as it may seem like we're on the wrong side of history, even God is saying, do not give up because I'm going to continue to sow my seed into the places where you think it is a complete waste of time and energy and watch what I can do. And the part that makes me the most frustrated with this parable is that Jesus explains how the other soils are bad, but he does not explain why the good soil is good. I want to know, Jesus, what makes good soil? What can I do to my heart, to your heart, and help good soil so we can produce fruit? He doesn't tell me, and it makes me so angry. When we hear words like this from Jesus in John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice that even if we start bearing fruit as a church, he will still prune us so we can bear more fruit. And I believe, I mean, I could be wrong, but I hear from many other people that serve in churches across our country that God is in the season of pruning the church back So maybe in my son's generation, we see a flourishing of the faith. He says, already you are clean, not because of what y'all did, but because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide or you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides or remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Bethany, what if what we're called to do is simply abide in Jesus. Pastor Danner and I have been going to conferences on like the future of the church and all these things. And, and like, I can't trust anyone on the stage that's talking about it because no one's ever lived in this time. <laughs> They're like, this is the future of the church. I'm like, you're lying, you have no idea. Like you've never lived in post-COVID, post-Christian America. But yet we go anyways. And yet here I am saying, here's the future of the church. But what I'm discerning, and even we just had a conversation this morning, that what if the future of the church, and these aren't all bad, but more programs, better worship, better preaching, more technology, better online services. What if the future of the church is simply the church being faithful? What if the future of the church is you faithfully following Jesus, where he is calling you in your workplace, and your family, on the soccer field, at brunch after church and abiding in him and becoming a people of prayer and discernment and as a church, instead of saying, we should do this and that and my opinion and your opinion and this church growth and that, simply saying, Holy Spirit, we're not moving unless you move us because we are abiding, we are remaining in you because apart from you, we can do nothing. Jesus ends the parable by saying, as for that and the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast and in honest and good heart and bear fruit with what? Patience. I am so impatient. I hate waiting. I want to look more like Jesus now, not when I'm Lord willing 80. I want you to look more like Jesus yesterday. I want our church to be full three months ago. But that's not how fruit comes to fruition. It's with patience. And what if we need to accept the fact that the work we're doing now of prayer and serving our neighborhoods and loving those around us sacrificially, continually laying down our own wants and desires when it comes to what we think church should be, that we may never see the fruit this side of eternity, but my son's generation, his son's generation, are discipled into following Jesus in the most amazing and authentic and sacrificial way because of the work of this generation. With patience, Bethany, may we not harden our hearts because we have a good and generous sower. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and I thank you for the scriptures that you speak to us, Lord. Lord, I pray that falls, your word falls on good soil and that anything I've said that is not from you, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray you continue to stir your church in the West and Bethany here on Slaughter Lane to love and serve sacrificially that we remain in you, that we abide in you And that you lead us into your kingdom projects and that you bear good fruit in your season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.